Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Angel Eduardo, and I'll be flying solo today as my co-host, Melissa Chen, is away. Our guest today is Greg Thomas. Greg is a writer, teacher, entrepreneur, and CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project, which uses a creative methodology to frame leadership and team development through the lens of jazz. Greg has written about culture, race, and democratic life in publications ranging from The Village Voice, Integral Life, New Republic, Salon, Uptown, The Root, The Guardian Observer, and The New York Daily News as a jazz columnist. We discuss jazz and its ability to serve as a foundation for learning, leadership, and connection, the power and importance of art and storytelling in our culture, race and the idea of transcending race in our society and personal lives. Greg's use of the term Black American and the tensions of trying to adopt it without racialization. We talk about whether American is an ethnicity, how to disentangle culture and ethnicity from race, and much, much more. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Thomas. Greg Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives here. Thank you, Angel. Glad to join you. So you and I have chatted a lot. We've actually run into each other a bunch of times. And you have been schooling me actually on jazz because I am a, I am, I am a musician, but I'm very illiterate when it comes to jazz. I, I, I told you that to me, jazz is kind of like poetry. I'm also a writer, so I analogize it this way. that It's like poetry in that the good stuff is really, 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 really good, life-changingly good. But the vast majority of it is awful. <laughs> and so it's very hard. It's very hard to tell if you don't know what you're what you're getting into. So I've I've enlisted you as my 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 guide into the world of jazz. Well, I, I'm happy to do it. And um, I look at it as a, uh, a, a good teacherly responsibility because yeah. you're very open and very thoughtful. And the fact that you asked me to do that, you know, they say the when the student is ready, the teacher will come. Ah, yeah. So, so in terms of this, I'm I'm happy to do it. I I would say that a lot of music, not just jazz, you know, ultimately is played by people who are either average, mediocre. You know, I mean. That's kind of the, the, the distribution anyway, you know, you, for sure. You're only going to have a certain number at the true upper tier of mastery, you know, right. 
That's just the way it is. That's true. So um, we're focusing on the masters and hopefully right. in our conversation today, there'll be some other masters who we'll refer to in, uh, in other domains. Yeah, beautifully put. I-, I think you're right in that, you know, all genres of any art, I guess, you know, you've got the cream of the crop and then the rest. I think I think it's probably harder, in my view, to be among the cream of the crop in jazz, and that's what I mean. Is that it's it's a it's a more difficult thing to be amazing at. Whereas you know, a rock musician, you if you've got the sensibility, you can know three chords and you can write amazing stuff and not be technically proficient in any real way. But jazz, I feel like the the bar is higher there. Well, it is because. Yeah. The legacy of the music over the last 100 years, mm. you've got these grand masters and giants, you know, who you're following. So right. that's one of the reasons it's difficult. But to be able to play jazz, if you can improvise, mm-hmm. it's just a question of, you know, your, your own voice, how well you improvise, how well you play with others and go through that usual process of, you know, Beginner, intermediate, advanced, or what's the apprentice, journeyman, master craftsman? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a question of that. You find that there's a lot of journeymen out yeah, here. Right. But even journeyman jazz uh, musicians, to be able to improvise and to be able to adapt themselves to, to the art form, you know, puts them a leg above those who can just play three chords usually. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And not that there's anything wrong with three chords. I mean, most most, Absolutely. Uh, most of the Beatles songs, that's three chords, maybe four with one weird chord they throw in there that they just learned. And it's it's incredible timeless music. So I'm sh- I, I know you're not I saying mean, that. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, yeah. the blues is based on the one, four, five progression. That's right. Yeah. That's that's three Solid. chords. Yeah. Solid. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, foundational. Exactly. Yeah. So, so this, this may seem tangential to those who are listening right now or watching, but it's not at all because jazz is such a significant part of your life. And you also use jazz in a very powerful way beyond the scope of mere, you know, teaching of music itself. So tell us a little bit about your relationship to jazz and the Jazz Leadership Project and what that's all about. I'd be glad to. Thank you so much. Well, the Jazz Leadership Project is an enterprise that I run with uh, my co-founder and and partner, Jewel Kins Thomas, who's my partner in life, too. And we launched JLP about six years ago to use the principles and practices of jazz music for leadership development and team development. Um, we find that it is a powerful metaphor and analogy for the development of oneself in terms of your own skills and capacities, but also oneself in collaboration and cohesion with others. Mm -hmm. And so we have built a company that we've been very fortunate to build relationships and have a client list that includes some very top tier companies from JP Morgan Chase to Verizon, TD Bank, and uh, and more, including Google, who we're actually coaching um, numerous individual leaders, you know, doing multiple sessions with them. Mm. And it's been a joy and pleasure to apply 
these creative musical principles as a cultural technology to help individuals better see within themselves in terms of what they do, but how that connects to others through big ears, which is our our um, principle of deep listening, you know, mm-hmm. and there's other principles that, that we could talk about. But yeah. that's a, I think that's a decent overview to start. It's such a great idea. But I'm but I play music and so I'm kind of already bought into the concept, right? So how do yeah. you how do you explain this to someone who ha, you know, according to them has no musical ability, no musical proclivity, have never touched an instrument. Uh maybe they enjoy music, but that's that's the extent of it. But how do you even broach this? How does it how does it work? How do you introduce them to it? Well, we usually, um, you know, let's say we're on a Zoom call. Uh-huh. We usually have a, a basic 20-minute presentation that we do where we use some slides, where we talk about the four principles and the six practices. We play a little music so they can hear it and feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we always, we do this both in our workshops, our long-term engagements, and for initial pitches, we bridge the music and the ideas from the music and the practices of the music to the workplace. So we're always making that bridge, mm-hmm. you know, and, and usually people, they're like, Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Now I'll be honest with you, you know, um, there have been some cases where people just don't get it. I remember talking to an accountant and he, he was just scratching his head cause he just couldn't, he just couldn't get it. So not everybody uh, will get it. Right. You know? But uh <laughs> you know, but I find yeah. that people, once they take the time to hear it, hear the music, and then start to make those connections that we're that we're spelling out, mm. that they're usually intrigued enough to search, you know, a little further. And then yeah. once we engage with them, I tell you, it's a very powerful, as I as I say, cultural technology. Yeah, I can imagine. It's just so, I mean, really, you know, there's a great saying, I forget who said it, but I heard it somewhere, which is, you know, it's, it's basically how you do anything is how you do everything. And that, that principle resonates so much with me as someone who does art in all these different mediums, you know, uh, people always ask me, you know, oh, you do photography, you do music, you do writing. What's the difference? How do you how do you approach those things? Where what's the difference in your approach or in your craft for these things? And I always say that there is no difference. I approach them the exact same way. It doesn't feel any different. It's just a different, you know, it goes out a different pipe, but it's but it's basically a different a different medium. Yeah, it's it's you know, sometimes something is better as a as a story rather than a song and vice versa. Right. Sometimes it's better as just a photograph. Sometimes it's a short film or something. But but it's really all storytelling and finding connections and making analogies and kind of connecting to and relating the human experience. That's what it all is. And so I see, I totally see the the way that you're bridging, the way that jazz works, the culture of jazz, the sort of interplay and the deep listening and the improvisation and the connectivity that 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 jazz facilitates or necessitates, and something like working together in an office. It seems totally disconnected, but really there's a fundamental human interaction going on and the principles are the same. You know, it's interesting because there's so many thoughts that came to my mind as you were saying that. Mm. And one is 
that the arts are so fundamental to human experience. Yeah. Fundamental, you know, dance, music, visual arts, and it goes way, way back. So, you know, it has something to do with how I think our our cognitive capacities and our cultural capacities develop mm-hmm. so that when people really have a powerful artistic experience, and even a transformative artistic experience, it is something that, you know, it, it deals with rhetoric. Okay. So I, I wrote a piece in which I connected jazz. There's a book called Civic Jazz that I wrote a review of, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the work of Kenneth Burke, who within the field of communications is is iconic, you know, communications and rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And his notion of rhetoric was different than Aristotle's. You know, it wasn't just about persuasion, per se. For him, rhetoric had to do with the interaction between the artifact or the form, the art form, and the person engaging with the form and it's that relationship that gives a basis for communication and a rhetorical way of looking at how we do what we do so i think that's a bridge the that rhetorical view is a bridge between the arts and other aspects of what we do as human beings because ultimately I mean, it's communication, even if it's just ourselves. It's like, you know, sometimes it's internal communication. So it's a stream of consciousness in our mind. It's some Mm -hmm. type of narrative flow or pattern. And so that's how those connections you're talking about. I mean, that's why so many artists do more than one art. You know, Ralph Ellison was one of my, my icons. He was one of the greatest essayists and fiction writers of the 20th century in America. He was also a photographer. Right. He also put together stereo components. You know, so oh, you wow. use your creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. he you use your creativity and it is expressed through different mediums, mm-hmm. but it's it's really a powerful example of, of the creative process. Yeah. I mean, the creative process is now that's that's you talk about fundamental to human mm-hmm. beings. The creative process is what's fundamental, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. The improvisation of adaptability, of adaptation itself, you know, like figuring out how to pick up a rock and go, I can use this to break something. Right. That's amazing. You know, that's- Yeah, I mean, now, see, now you're going back to the, you know, the early parts of of our, you know, human existence Mm -hmm. where you talked about tool making. Right. And how yeah. the tools we created then allow us to expand what we did as human beings. And then there's a building and a building, a building upon that. Right. Until you get to, you know, contemporary yeah. time. So, yeah, you and I talking through a computer screen that we, we couldn't build it if we tried, right? We, we, <laughs> we use this stuff. We have it in our pockets, but we couldn't figure this out. So it, it, everything's been outsourced. That's how much there is. It's an amazing right. concept. And you're right. You know, I'm not surprised. I didn't know that about Ellison, but I'm not surprised because the most brilliant minds in human history, you know, I, I read a book on Da Vinci. I read a biography on Da Vinci. That guy must have been 
if not the single greatest genius that's ever lived, he's got to be one of them. He's got to be in the top three. There's no question. Because oh, the no, guy- There's no question. Right. <laughs> if it weren't for, uh, for his inability to complete things- you know, he'd be he'd be known as the most brilliant human being that's ever lived because he pioneered dentistry and anatomy studies and 3D modeling of shapes and geometry. He did all this stuff in his notebooks and just never finished it. But but it's all in there and it's insane the stuff that he predicted, the stuff that he anticipated. You know, he pre he predated Newton's uh theories of gravity and stuff just by reasoning and analogizing, you know studying water so that he could paint it accurately, studying rock formation so that he could paint them accurately. He would go down these rabbit holes of curiosity and end up discovering like scientific facts and revolutionary scientific thinking just for the sake of, of his art. You know, at least that's, that was the impetus. It's amazing. I hear you. And, and look how yeah. through that person, through Da Vinci, right. how art and science yeah. are melded together. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, it used to be where so many of these disciplines were really together under the rubric of philosophy. And then, you know, it got broken up into these different fields and yeah. disciplines. And, and now everything is so segregated. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about, I think, is the kind of sensibility that allows us to reintegrate a more integral perspective. But we integrate. Yeah, the distinctions are there. But we've got to find ways to synthesize these different right. domains so that, you know, we can get out of some of the, the crises that we're in. I mean, yeah. we're in, there's some wicked problems we're dealing with. <laughs> and we need the kind of thinking, the kind of foresight, the kind of integration of feeling and form to, um, to riff on Suzanne Langer, a great American philosopher, so that we can address these problems in a way where, you know, we can attempt to see the whole or envision the whole so that we don't just, so it's it's approaching wisdom. So we don't just do this over here and this pop problem pops up over there because you haven't seen the whole picture. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's amazing that, that we're sort of uh, teasing this theme out because so much of what, what we're here to talk about is connected to all of this. You know, that you, you mentioned, I always was frustrated by the idea that history is over here, English is over here, science is over here, and, and never the twain shall meet. You know, it's, it seems to me that you need science to understand history. You need history to understand science. You need the narrative. You know, the, the, it's the, I talk about this all the time, but the reason why people can tell you, they can sit, sit you down and talk to you for hours about the lore and the history of the characters and houses and and events from Game of Thrones or Star Wars, like the extended universe of Star Wars, you know, an entire galaxy's worth of content and and characters and histories and interactions and, you know, battles and scenes and all these things. But they couldn't tell you, you know, what year certain certain documents got signed or they couldn't tell you, you know, what's going on in American history in 15 whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. They can't tell you because, you know, they've put history into this box in their head. That's the boring stuff that I sit through in school. But then when I go home, I watch TV and I learn all about Game of Thrones, which is based on European history, right? It's like, but it's, but it's, the difference is the power of narrative, the power of storytelling and the way that it's presented to you. 
if it were presented to you in this powerful narrative way that resonates with us as humans because we are a storytelling species, then it would be different. So it's about the I, I totally practice. agree, man. I totally agree. Yeah. And, and part of that is why myth is so important. People think of myth, you know, mm. oftentimes as, oh, that's something that's not true. Well, if you look at the course of human development, you could say that, you know, there was a, a, a period where myth was so powerful. But as we develop and, and, and go through different stages of development as, as humans, yeah. you don't just give up the previous stages, you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, people talk about postmodernism. And one of the issues with postmodernism is that in its critique of modernity, there's there's a not an appreciate or enough of appreciation and acceptance of some of the findings from modernity, like science. Right. You, you, you got science is fundamental, you know, mm -hmm. to to what we look at as truth. But before that, you had, you know, of course, you had religion, mm -hmm. but myth, the power and function of myth. And I didn't mean to necessarily riff on jo Joseph Campbell, but it but it fits, you know, the power yeah. of myth. Is so because of, like you said, story, narrative, and then that connects to meaning, which mm -hmm. is why, you know, that's part of my focus on culture, man. Yeah. You know, values and meanings as, you know, through narrative, that's one way of doing it. Then values and meaning through different art forms where art is separate, you know, art is separate from your everyday life. It is mm -hmm. part of your everyday life, yes, but it's separate. It's like Ellison would say that, you know, art has a frame around it. So mm -hmm. it's uh, what Murray, Albert Murray would say is that art is a reenactment of something from life in a different way, in a different form. Yeah. So we need that kind of separation so we can kind of reflect and look at aspects of ourselves in a deeper way. That's the same thing yeah. with story and myth. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, once upon a time, once you say that people are in, in a mode where they're ready to. Right. Yeah. Go it's a through journey. Right. Yeah. And, and certain rules don't apply and certain freedoms must be allowed in order for that exploration right. to happen. It's a, it's a fenced in sort of playground, right? Where it, within exactly. these walls, some, something right. amazing can happen. And yeah, you know, you can't necessarily apply that to your everyday, you know, get up, go commute go to work, come back thing. But, but we need to be able to visit that place. It's, I'm, I'm thinking of like a theater, you know, you, you walk into a movie theater, you know, you're going right. to sit down and just experience something and it's not going to make any sense. And you're going to have to suspend your disbelief. You're going to have to do a lot of those things in order to have that experience, you know? Absolutely. And that's why the yeah. word play, you go yeah. to see a play, you right. play music, Yep. You know, the concept of play is just so fundamental, again, yeah. to our human existence. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And it's I it's mean, funny that the, the, all, the, all the most coveted professions are ones in which we use that, that term. You know, you, you want to be an actor so you can play roles. And you want to be a, a rock star so you can play music. And you want to be an athlete <laughs> so you can play sports. And right. It, it's it's all we want to do is play, right? But but it's it doesn't have this sort of diminutive quality that that we often Ooh. attribute to it. Right? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful. It's like powerful. it's like and once you become an adult, ah, play. 
Yeah, let yeah. me give you a quick example. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sitting with my daughter, who who is now an adult in graduate school at MIT. But when she was like five or six years old, we watch. We're, she's sitting on my lap, and we're watching a cartoon. And she's laughing, and I'm laughing. But I'm, you know, I, I I'm an adult, so I ended up saying, I said, I said, oh man, this is so silly. Mm-hmm. She looked at me and said, <laughs> Daddy, it's supposed to be silly. Yeah. You know? Right. And I'm like, oh, you're right, baby. You are so right. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That yeah. attitude of, of play, you know? Yeah. And that ties to, you know, the comedic dimension uh, mm-hmm. and humor and why that's so important. You know, Ellison mm-hmm. would talk about the blues and America and American literature as being tragic comic. So the tragic dimension right. is there, but that comic dimension, you know, it's, it's like going back to the, the uh, ancient Greek masks where you see one right. mask, yep. the other mask, yep. with a yep. smile. You know, that's the, that tragic comic. And you need, you, know, you need an awareness of both. If you just mm-hmm. have the tragic, Oh man, you know, uh, you end up as like, you know, do I continue going on or do I end it all? (laughs) But you can't just have the comic either because the the comedic dimension or or the comic dimension where, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy and girl get back together. Yay! That's kind of the comic tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. But that's not all of life. The tragic is there too. So you so you kind of have both of those going at the same time. Boy, I didn't realize our conversation was gonna like go in this direction. (laughs) Yeah, no, me neither. Me neither. But it actually still all ties together because the 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 next thing I was gonna ask you about was I think you you and I both saw Wynton Marsalis on Bill Maher, and he had this beautiful thing that he said uh, when Bill Maher asked him about race. And, you know, he said, but we're all just playing jazz, you know, and, and we need to recognize one another in that sort of tradition, right? So it ties back to all the stuff that we've been talking about. I'm sure you saw that. What did you, what did oh, you I did think? See. And, yeah, okay. So I, what did you, I, oh, what did you oh, think? Yeah, Tell me about that. I would that. agree yeah. with Winton. I mean, I happen to know Winton. I've known Winton since 1993. Mm. And I was eight years old, come- just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, Winton and I come out of, out of a similar uh, lineage, a similar intellectual and philosophical lineage. I've mentioned Ralph Ellison. I've mentioned Albert Murray. I call them together the Ralph Ellison-Albert Murray continuum of thought, mm-hmm. which focuses on more about culture, more about art, more about a philosophical way of seeing our lives as individuals and as citizens in the United States, for example, but even beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, I, I totally got that and get it and agree yeah. with Winton. I mean, he and I have talked quite a bit over the years. And Winton is always, you know, see, Winton, he'll acknowledge, he's like, look, when I grew up, I went through all, he went through all kinds of stuff growing up in Kenner, Louisiana. That's, you know, I guess not far from New Orleans. And he went through, he experienced racism. So he's sure. not going to deny, as I'm not going to deny, as you're not going to deny, that racism still exists. Mm-hmm. 
But when it comes to race, yeah, where you separate human beings into subspecies, as if there are this hard and fast immutable differences among those human beings based on their skin color, the shape of their head, the size of the nose. Yeah. It's ludicrous. Right. It's a ludicrous notion, you know? Yeah. But yeah. people, you know, you have a history of three, 400 years where this racial worldview and this process of racialization, which is how races are created, came into existence where today, you know, people you know, on the media every single day in every, um, what do you call the, the, I'm trying to think of the technical term that they use for audiences in different regions, but uh, no matter where it is, well, that's one thing. Well, they, they look at, at demographics and race mm -hmm. is one of them. But anyway, on network TV, cable TV, especially news, mm -hmm. every day you're going to see something about, you know, where they talk about black people and white people. And the thing is, those things in terms of race are fallacious. Right. Biological race is a fallacy. Mm -hmm. As human beings, we share what ninety-nine percent or something of the same genetic, you know, yep. underpinnings, and you have certain little differences that will determine the, your color of your skin, for example. But that says nothing about your mm -hmm. internal values, your 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 subjective thoughts, your mm -hmm. education, your interests you know, your, your talents and abilities, your experience. Now, of course, because people believe in race and behave based on that belief and that process of racialization, there's differential treatment and double standards that are based on that, that has impact on people's life chances. Mm -hmm. That's real, no yeah. question. Yeah. But as you well know, me and others like Carlos Hoyt and Sheena Mason, we did a conference, a one-day conference, September 24th of 2022 in Lexington, Massachusetts, that I'm happy to say you attended, uh, Resolving the Racism Dilemma, where we're trying to pull the rug from under this process of racialization that keeps right. this stuff together. You know, this racial world, seeing the world through the lens of race, where it's like a racial world and you're a racial agent in that world. Right. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're definitely engaged in the same project there. And I think that one of our major challenges is something that you address in a, a recent piece that you just wrote, um, where you actually directly disagree with uh, our, our friends and colleagues, John McWhorter and... Uh, Glenn Lowry and a, a couple of other people who, who kind of, for you know, for lack of a better way of framing it, sort of throw their hands up and say, "Look, this is the water we're swimming in, and I don't know that there's a way to get out of it, and I don't know that 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 we should even want to necessarily, right? Depending on, right. on what we're talking about." So, tell us a little right. bit about that, and and what prompted that? What what thoughts from Glenn and John prompted that, and and what your responses are? Thank you. You're talking about the piece entitled 
uh, considering deracialization, right. a response to Glenn Lowry and Clifton Roscoe, who's a friend Clifton of Roscoe. Glenn Lowry's, who had a piece on his Substack titled something like "Race is Here to Stay." You know, we just need to learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I took umbrage at that and disagreed with that respectfully. Sure. Okay. I have deep respect for Glenn Lowry and, and his, his integrity, you know, and his, he's gone through various uh, stages in his own life. And he, as he's writing his biography, is reflecting on those stages. And he's being very self-critical. You know, it's like mm. sometimes, you know, there's a lot of people who might criticize the period in the 80s when he was, you know, pro-Reagan and stuff. But people, they go through developmental changes and he's probably right. more harsh on himself than those people, you know? Yeah. But I think that what I found as far as Glenn in particular is that he says, yes, we need to stop over-racializing various topics, you know, because that's a dangerous road to go down. We've seen that. Mm -hmm. He says, but as far as like de-racializing, where we, you know, really separate ourselves from race per se, he says, I don't know about that because I have these traditions, these these Black American or African American, Afro American, whatever term you want to use, mm-hmm. that I don't want to let go of. I've been nurtured by them. And what I said in the piece is I'm nurtured by them too. Right. And I have given up believing in the concept of race. Mm-hmm. And I want to separate myself from the process of racialization. And I no longer believe in a racial worldview. That doesn't mean that I give up my heritage, right. my ancestry, my culture. It doesn't mean that. And I think what happened there is that I think Glenn is conflating in this instance race and culture, which mm-hmm. is a really um, unfortunate conflation because they are not the same thing. Right. With John McWhorter, uh, John just says, look, you know, I choose my battles. <laughs> that's not a battle. <laughs> yeah. That's not a battle I'm willing yeah. to wage. Right. And that's his prerogative. Yeah, he's got that's too many. <laughs> uh-huh. he's, got, he's got enough of his own. That's true. Yeah, he's got enough. You know, I mean, so I don't I don't begrudge anybody just choosing mm-hmm. not to wage that battle that I've chosen to wage. Mm-hmm. But there are some of us who have chosen to, to wage that battle because yeah. it's so tied to our identity as Americans. And then mm-hmm. to continue from Americans as a part of, you know, West, our Western heritage. Right. And it's been so destructive. Right. Now, if we deracialize tomorrow, you know, particularly in the piece you're talking about, we talk about the U.S. census mm-hmm. and where we add racialization, or should we say how you are racialized to the question about race. So instead of compelling people to, self-racialized. What race are you? Which assumes that race is reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would say or ask, how are you racialized? Mm-hmm. Because how you are treated is often related to and connected to how you're racialized. Yeah. So that question allows you to, like we were talking about with art, separate yourself from race and racialization but you can acknowledge that people are racialized and still track 
bias and discrimination by tracking how people are racialized. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so you're talking so about you're talking about Carlos Hoyt's sort of uh, change.org petition to to amend the 2030 census to to include exactly. this sort Thank of. Thank you for specifying. Yeah. That's exactly um, what I'm talking. About. And we're we're gonna have Carlos on the podcast, so I'm gonna grill him on that. So I won't I Great. won't I won't waste my questions on you there. Okay, uh, good. But but I, I do have some some concerns that that would actually that will actually come out in my questions to you about your specific approach because I would say this. Can I can I say this? Excuse me yeah, for interrupting yeah. you. But it was wonderful at the conference. You were like I love being the confounding variable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did. And you were like, you know, I don't fit any of those boxes. Right. But at the top of the revamp form, the sample form, mm-hmm. the first box is basically I do not identify yeah. with race. That's huge. So that option is there too. Yeah, that's huge for sure. And that's what I would yeah. put. And yeah, it just gets complicated because now you're talking about perceptions and yeah. whether you know people's perceptions. So the, one of the things that I said during that conference was some people insist that I am black because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Dominican. My parents are from the Dominican Republic. That's Hispaniola. That is, you know, 90% of the people on that island are of African ancestry. So I'm black. But other people insist that I am white because I've written certain essays and things. <laughs> and also, you know, people, some people insist, no, you are mixed. You are of mixed ancestry. And then you have to wonder what that means and what, what the percentage is, 60-40, 70-30? Like, what is it? And it just gets way too confusing. But yeah, like I said, I, I will. I'm looking forward to grilling Carlos on this because it's a really fascinating conversation to have. So yeah, I wanted to I wanted to grill you about something related to this this kind of the way you're seen and the way you see yourself and the way we label one or, one another and ourselves. And I so a while back we did a podcast with Thomas Chatterton Williams and I brought you up and I basically yeah, broke so- down. Yeah. So, so, and I know you saw that because you reached out and said, I feel like you got me wrong. So let me, let me break down what I was thinking there. So you use the term black American, capital B, capital A, as a kind of ethnicity for, I guess, Africans, Africans descended from slaves, right? American, American, African Americans, right? Who are descended from slaves. And, and as a, as a particular sub ethnicity within the ethnicity of American. And my, my well, I don't I don't think American is an ethnicity. I oh. think American is a nationality. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. In other so words, we'll it's a national, that. it's a national. I would say that if you look at American culture overall, mm-hmm. you could say that the people we're referring to, because mm-hmm. there have been many names, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. colored. American Negroes, Negro Americans, you know, yep, yep. they're a group of people who have created a culture that within the American context is a subculture. In other words, right. it's, it's, it's a idiomatic variation that you can point to historically where mm-hmm. various forms were created, the spirituals, the mm-hmm. blues, jazz, that there were certain cultural styles and approaches to the way we speak and improvise in speech, mm-hmm. dance, 
you know, culinary stuff, you know, mm-hmm. so that that's that's more what I'm referring to. Gotcha. Right. I want to let you I mean, I can continue, but I really want to let you get out more of what you mean mm-hmm. so I can clarify that. And so the audience also can yeah. hear more of what what your um, mm-hmm. your either critique or your questions are that, you know, for yeah. clarification. Well, you've actually already answered one point of confusion and we can talk more about this, which is that I feel that American is an ethnicity and, and it's a, it's a unique one. It's a complicated one because of the nature of America itself as a a melting pot sort of place, right? That there's, there's a way in which, you know, people come as immigrants and they are Italian or French or Irish and then their children are Irish American or French American or Italian American. And then their children are maybe still Italian American, maybe still French American, but eventually two, three generations down, they're just American now. And of course they are of that particular ancestry. They have certain cultural norms and, and ways of being that are, that are indicative of or informed by that ancestry, right? But even that starts to get muddy because, you know, you have New Jersey Italians and you have Brooklyn Italians and they're not that far away from each other, but there's a distinct difference. And, and then, you know, you have Italians in Chicago and that's also a distinctly different thing. The ancestry is the same or similar, but, but it has, it has varied now in this beautiful way. And so it becomes difficult to see all of those people as belonging to one group. It seems more sensible to me to break them up into their own sort of regional groups and then subdividing from even within that, because even, you know, different neighborhoods in Chicago will have a different kind of culture and a way of being, you know, as a New Yorker and, you know, you also live nearby, you know, you know, Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx. Those are different and the vibe is different. The way people talk is different. You know, it's, it's, and then even within that, right, the, the Polish community in Brooklyn versus the, the Dominican or Puerto Rican community in Brooklyn versus the Italian community in Brooklyn. It's different. There are differences, right? So I see the same thing going on with what we're calling black Americans, right? There's, there's the black Americans in West Virginia and then Virginia and then Chicago and then, you know, uh, New York City and then Los Angeles. And, you know, right. so it, it, I were, I have two, two, two points of, of contention here. The first is just the use of the racialized term, because as we've been discussing, right, there's a kind of pernicious way, there's a pernicious sort of magnetism to those terms and the concepts yeah. that have been tied to them that right. is really hard to escape. You know, maybe, maybe magnetism is, is the wrong, it's a gravity, right? We, we're, we're kind of perilously orbiting this thing and hoping that we're not just going to get sucked into it. But, but the danger to me is, is still there. So that's the first one. The second one is the risk of, of, you know, kind of globbing together these groups that don't really belong together in this larger American experiment where, where the, the diversity and the variation is sort of the point. And it's, it's, it becomes this thing we call American that is super multifaceted in the way that 
you know, Japanese is not, or Italian is not, even though there are, of course, subcultures and subgroups within both of those paradigms, they're not the same. They're not, they're not, they're not subgroups and subcultures in the same way, just by dint of the way our history has played out. So I put a lot on the table there, but let me know what you think. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first, I would say I would be willing to entertain the idea that American is an ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a point that um, my colleague, Dr. Sheena Mason, who has been a guest on your show and who yeah. also, like me, uh, is an advisor to uh, FAIR. So I'm definitely willing to entertain that. I mean, we know that even the concept of ethnicity is somewhat muddy, yeah. you know? So, you know, we try to come up with these defined ways of describing human dynamics and different groups of people in different places at different times. So we, th- this is, so what I would say specifically with black is, let me tell you kind of the origins of my use of that term. Mm-hmm. As you know, it's very rare for me in my writing or speech to say black without the qualifier of American. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, you're right. Black American to me is an ethnocultural term within the context of America. Okay. Because American mm-hmm. is a nationality. My parents' generation from the 60s, unlike previous generations, they embraced the word black. Right. Because previous to that, it was like, you know, those were fighting words often. If you called somebody black, it was, you right. know. Yeah, yeah. So they were like, wait, wait a second. I'll give you an example. There's a there's a book on marketing. I'm trying to remember the I think it's called positioning. Mm-hmm. And the authors they talk about how from a marketing perspective, the folks in the 60s who claimed that black is beautiful, it was like a brilliant marketing strategy. It flipped the script on the negativity of the connotation of the word previously. Mm-hmm. So for one thing, because my parents' generation embraced it, I continue that practice. That's, that's one thing. Another is that I think if you if you look at the work of Stuart Hall, who was a very important scholar and writer and an intellectual out of Britain and the British cultural studies um, movement, he did a series of lectures at Harvard in the 90s, but they came out in the 2000s. And he talks about how even if we separate ourselves from race, there's always going to be some trace of it left because it's been so entrenched that it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to erase it. So say you have a blank sheet of paper. You know, you know the word palimpest? So you've got a piece of paper and you, and you have writing on it. And then you erase that writing. Well, Traces of what was there still there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I admit that there's some traces of the racialized version of Black 
when I say Black American. I don't deny it, you know? I try to clearly define it for myself and for others on what I mean. Mm-hmm. Now, you can also say Afro-American, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been using that term a little more of late. I noticed uh, that. I noticed yeah, that. yeah, I've been like, using yes. that. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> but I don't use African-American. I'm not, I'm not disputing with those who decide to use it. Mm-hmm. But with me, I don't use African-American because I think that should be reserved for Africans, contemporary Africans who come to America. Mm-hmm. And that can include more than just people who are racialized as black. Because mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. not just black people, so-called, yeah. on the African Elon, Elon Musk. Is, <laughs> yeah. It could put them in African <laughs> you go. and show right. they're on, right? No yeah. one is going to yeah, like you that. Know? Uh, <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I know. But, but you, you know, know what? Let, let me, let me, let me sure. stop you there just because... Okay. So, one thing that is distinct about, you know, African descendants of slaves is that their ancestry is, is difficult or impossible to trace beyond a certain right. point, right? right. And, right? And it just struck me right now that, you know, wanting to reserve African-American for those from Africa who come to the U.S., we want to call them African-Americans. Why aren't we calling them... Nigerian American or Ghana, Ghana American or South African American, you know, for example. And the reason why, you know, the ADOS would be called African American is because we can't go further than that. And so it becomes its own sort of delineation. What do you think about that? Have you thought about that at all? That's interesting. I mean, I certainly, I certainly think that one of the things I like about the way you laid out the differentiations among people in different areas and regions, mm-hmm. even if they have the same ancestry, is that it's a more realistic view of human beings and the cultural and social environment that they're actually in. Right. And so I like that. I, it's like I apply the same kind of thought that you stated for Africans Nigeria, Ghanaian, Congolese, right, uh, and other places to folks from the Caribbean. My yeah. wife is from Barbados. Um, there are folks from Jamaica, and that's a, that's a that's a distinct mm-hmm. heritage and yeah. history. Right. They're all a part of you know they have a same Caribbean you know overall location. But there's distinctions among them. And I think it's really important to keep the distinctions or at least to acknowledge them, the distinctions, be aware of them. Because, again, it's a more realistic view of our human reality and our human experience. But I think this is where the, um, the ideas of, of America are so powerful. E pluribus unum, out of yeah. many, one. Mm-hmm. Diversity within unity, a unified diversity. So those differences are there and we don't want to erase those differences. It's Mm -hmm. just like they say, you know, variety is the spice of life. Those differences are good and cool. If we look at it and treat it in the right way, if we don't set up some type of specious um, hierarchy of, you know, based on skin color, I mean, yeah. those differences can be beautiful. No differences can be, to me, see, I'm a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. My family's from the South, okay. but I'm, yeah, I'm, there you go. I was born in it. So growing up, it was so great to be around Irish folks and Jewish folks and Polish folks and, you know, Italians and this and that. And it was so, and so I'm used to that kind of variety and differentiation. There are certain people in the United States, if if they stay more local and the folks that they're around are mostly the same in terms of how they've been racialized, Mm -hmm. then their experience might not be as broad or cosmopolitan as that, you know? Right. But I mean, that's how I came up. So, you know, when you talk about all those, all those, you know, varieties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but the thing is now let's talk about another aspect of this that we have to acknowledge. Now you said descendants of slaves. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in this country, yes, descendants of slaves who have created culture, culture and cultural styles, cultural idioms, cultural forms within and through which they express their highest values and meanings. Mm-hmm. And this is one thing that, that is interesting. There was a great interview with Ellison. I think it's from 1958 called Some Questions, Some Answers. And the interviewer asked him, well, what would you say, what would you think of the term black culture? He says, whether it's white culture or black culture, I think that's racist. He said this in 1958. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. He says, look, if you look at, at Haitians, people from Haiti, they have more of a Catholic upbringing. There's certain differences Mm -hmm. just because they have similar skin tones and we're, we're closer to, you know, their African heritage than, than others who, because, I mean, all of humanity came from Africa, okay? Right. Yeah, we're that's the other about, thing. <laughs> you know, we're talking about more recent, you know? Right, yeah. So when you, he said, what we share, talking about what we as what he called Negro Americans or American Negroes share with folks in the Caribbean, and folks in Africa and other places that were colonized, we share a hatred for the oppression and for the dehumanization that came from enslavement mm-hmm. and colonization. So that's a, pol- a shared political identification. Mm-hmm. He says, but its cultural value is almost nil. Right. So there's shared political. So when you talk about politics, you're talking about power and you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, resources and you're talking about, you know, ways of uh, engaging in the pluralistic conflict, you know, and, and competition over uh, resources. There are shared identifications we have because of that shared experience. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we have the same culture. And you are right. And I really like what you say because I have an article called Race, Jazz Versus Racism. And I talk about how when I was in college, I went to Hamilton College from 1981 to 1985. I was born in 85, just so you know. Oh, okay. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for thank you for letting me know. That. <laughs> I mean, you're not trying to imply anything about my age. No, just are you? just just making some just notes. Just facts. It's just facts, right? <laughs> just facts, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1977, I watched Roots. I talk about in this yeah. article how, you know, it was really with Roots that so many folks, myself included, became aware by seeing that visual, those images and that storyline, the horrors of the slave trade, mm-hmm. you know, losing your, 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 your traditional names, you know, being forced to adopt another name, being whipped and, and brutalized, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you run away, being caught and, and, and being enchained and sold and separated from your family, all of that stuff, that planted a seed, which in college, when I started going deeper into the history, started bubbling up as, a, as almost a hatred yeah. for people, as I would now say, who are racialized as white. But what prevented me from going down that rabbit hole of hate? was the music, was my love for jazz and immersing myself in jazz when I was in high school, where I didn't segregate who I listened to and liked based on race. Right. It was a sound. It was a style that I loved. So, yes, there are, I mean, Black Americans, Afro-Americans, Negro-Americans, colored Americans, whatever whatever you want to say, Mm -hmm. created the blues and created jazz. But as I love to say, when an art form is created, it becomes a gift to the world. So it's not that Black people, Black Americans own jazz. You've got to ask me permission before you can play it. That's ridiculous. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, people say that, though. That's, you know, you're taking, you know. Eminem doesn't count. Eminem is stealing, you know. Uh, (laughs) Eminem is an American who fell in love with an art form created by black folk. And I like to say white folk and black folk because that's a Southern way of putting a hum- like a more human face on it. When right. you say black folk, white folk. Right. He fell in love with that art form. He devoted himself to that art form, as did people like Big Spiderbeck in jazz, mm-hmm. Stan Getz. Um, uh, Paul Desmond, uh, Phil Woods. Mm-hmm. These are people who are racialized as white, whose music I fell in love with. Mm-hmm. You know, to bring it from a little further up to date, uh, the late, great Michael Brecker. Um, there's a guy still alive on the West Coast named Pete Chrislieb. I love their playing. Mm-hmm. And what I did for this article, man, was I looked at, I said, let me do a little more research into their ancestry. And I found out that Phil Woods was a combination of like, and I think French, German, and Irish, and that one of them had Southern heritage and another one had a different mixture. And I, and I gave me a richer understanding of who they were. Right. Other than saying white. So one of the things I say in the piece, I said, isn't it a shame that through the term white, that their background, the differences in their background of their and the individuality of their background is erased. Like right. you take some white out and just yeah. white out that literally, it's, it's white. <laughs> literally, literally yeah. whiting it out. 
So that's why I say I like the way you're saying that we have to look at where people come from, their regional identities mm-hmm. and, and cultural or environmental influences, too. Because as I said to Sheena, when I was on Sheena Mace's own podcast, I said, look, you know, people are racialized as Black who are from the South originally, and those who are from the North, and those who are from the West Coast, and those from the Midwest. There are differences among them. For sure. They have a shared history in terms of this country, and there are some shared dynamics that you can call Black American culture. But check this out. This is the beauty of culture over race. Black American culture is not just, when you look at its tributaries, Black. As American, Europe is a part of our heritage. So Black Americans have, in part, a European heritage, in part, an African heritage, in part, aspects from the Caribbean, and in jazz, an Afro-Cuban element. Um, the great uh, pianist and composer, Jelly Roll Mortens, he called it the Spanish tinge, you know, <laughs> that's in the music and it's in yeah. our culture. So, you know, if we dig deeper than these ridiculous immutable labels based on skin color, we find such richness that we can focus on. But again, yeah. it's a diversity within the unity. The unity are American ideals founded and grounded in the nation's founding documents, right. what Ellison called our sacred documents. So that ties into the concept of like uh, a secular religion in terms of America. And I'm not talking about jingoistic patriotism. I'm talking about an appreciation for the ideals of this nation that are found in the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, particularly the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and I extend it to the Emancipation Proclamation, mm-hmm. to Lincoln's second inaugural address. I mean, they are, these are where in script, in writing, in narration, are ideals that become beacons for us to aspire to and to work towards. And this is something that that Stanley Crouch, my my late friend, who's a part of this lineage that I say that Winton and I share, he would talk about how the amendment process, that the fact that we can bring amendments to bear has within it a way for us to address and redress past wrongs. Right. So, so, so this is something that's inherent in our political philosophy. And so it's really important for us to recognize those ideals and recognize how we violate them, have violated them and do violate them all the time. That doesn't mean we throw them away. That doesn't mean we say they're full of crap. No, (laughs) You right. still use it as inspiration yeah, and work towards it together with other people. I, and that's an omni-American, to use another term that you yeah. know I like to use. That's an omni-American perspective. That's mm-hmm. a term from Albert Murray uh, in the title of his first book, The Omni-Americans. Yeah, I have it up on my shelf here somewhere. Cool. Um, uh, I haven't gotten through it yet. 
it's it's a little okay. it's a little dry for me, but I'm trying. Um, well, the thing is, I would say that that particular book, there are aspects of it that are time, you know, that are based on the time. Yeah, you know, yeah, he, right. he came out in 1970. You know, you know, in the midst of the movement, or right after, you know, like a couple of years after Dr. King and and Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. So there are certain things that are time bound, but there are certain things that are timeless there too. Yeah, and that's true for his book, The Hero and the Blues, also. So mm-hmm. I would recommend that. Stomping the Blues too, on the music. So um, yeah, but the thing is, as with jazz, I'm here for you, man. If you want to talk about <laughs> for that, sure, you know? yeah, man. Oh no, I'm going to be pestering you for a long time. There's there's too much <laughs> to learn from you, man. Uh, I but yeah, I, I love everything you're saying, and I love the idea of. You know, you mentioned Stanley Crouch and you mentioned Wynton Marsalis as being with you in this sort of intellectual ancestry. You know, you, you yeah, guys have an intellectual exactly. philosophical ancestry. It's a I love blues that. idiom. I call it the blues idiom wisdom tradition. Mm-hmm. And I point to Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman as the mother and father of oh, that tradition. Nice. nice. Yeah. Yeah. So see, and and it's, it's connected to thought. It's connected to a way of being right. And, you know, I, I, I grew up sort of by osmosis, sort of just understanding, oh, you know, Elvis Presley, for example, stole black music, right? Like he got famous because of racism. And that was the only vehicle from, from which the, the, the dominant culture would accept that sort of music. Right. That's that was my conception of it. And there's some truth to that. But but I think I heaped too much blame on him himself. Right. And I recently, rather than watch the film that just came out, I decided to watch uh, an HBO documentary called The Seeker about him. It's a two parter and it's it's really well done. Uh, And I've never really been into Elvis. I never got into it. He's got a ton of great songs, but I've just never really never happened to me. But I love I love that that the reality is he grew up in this culture. He grew up listening to this music. He grew up loving this music. That music belonged to him just as much as it belonged to anybody else. And his skin color had nothing to do with it. You know? Exactly. Now, one of the things that I, that I say uh, in that same piece Mm -hmm. is that, you know, yes, it is true that, there were songs that were written by uh, black folk mm-hmm. who performed by Elvis or blues tunes performed by the, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or by Pat mm-hmm. Boone that became hits, so-called crossover hits. Right. That is true. Yeah. But Elvis, to focus on Elvis, you know, I think Elvis and Eminem in some ways are synonymous yeah. In that they grew up around it. So it's a part of thank you. It's yes. a part of their culture. He loved gospel music. Yeah. And it only, and this is where the word appropriation comes up. Mm. It only becomes appropriation if you don't acknowledge the source and the origins and steal it claiming that it's your own and that you created it. That's appropriation. 
I mean, I'm so. I'm saying that's that's real that's, appropriation. Yeah, right. I would just say that's theft and plagiarism. Hello, right? <laughs> <laughs> and leave appropriation out of it because yeah, I mean, we had a piece on our Substack recently about cultural appropriation, and that it, there's no real such thing. There's there's culture which constantly fluctuates, and people live in and adopt and and can participate in because it belongs to all of us. And then there's bad art. And, and, you know, there's, there's, you're taking this thing and you're doing a terrible job with it. That's bad right. art. Or there's plagiarism and theft, you know, and that's, those are different right. things. But the, you're the right. Inherent, I mean, I like what you said that you, we, you let, let's call it what it is. Yeah. But the thing is, it's so interesting. And this is why, you know, it's one of the reasons among many that in certain circles, Ellison is out of fashion. But mm-hmm. he said, look, cult, you know, we've been appropriating each other's you know, right. ways. Exactly. Forever, you know, he -hmm. talks about how if you go back to the 19th century, you have, you know, and some of this is connected to the blackface tradition, but you have black folks who were imitating the dances that they saw in the big house. Right. But they were imitating it in their own style and parodying it Mm -hmm. almost in a satirical way. Yeah. And then the folks in the big house saw what they were doing and started to imitate what they were doing. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Exactly. You have these cross influences all the time. And he actually says, you know, we've been appropriating each other's stuff from that's, time immemorial. That's just the way culture works. That's all it can ever be. Nobody's pulling yep. something out of nothing. Everything comes from something that came before it in some way. It's a response, a reaction, an imitation. In my case, I've written many songs just by attempting to figure out how to play a song that I really liked from someone else and not Uh, being able to quite, you know, from memory, I'm trying to figure like, wow, how does that go? And I'll I'll stumble upon something that doesn't sound anything like what I was trying to do. And here we go. I got a new thing. And you wouldn't even necessarily know that that I was trying to do that. You wouldn't be able to connect the two pieces. But that's where it came from, right? It's just, that's yep. the way it works. Um, well, Greg, it's been awesome talking to you, man. I, I don't want to monopolize too much more of your time, but I want to make sure we ask the last question uh, that, that we ask all our guests here. As you know, as an affair advisor, you know that our focus is to provide what we call a pro-human approach to the issues of our day and all the issues that you and I have been talking about this whole time. What does pro-human mean to you and how can everyday people adopt that pro-human approach to their goings-on and their dealings with this cultural stuff? Mm-hmm. Pro-human, yeah. Um, I would say pro-human means that we are for what we share in common as humans. And we are for the things that make us distinct as human beings, as members of different human groups. So I'll leave with this this philosophical concept that comes from Kwame Anthony Appiah and has been extended by Danielle Allen, political philosopher at Harvard, rooted cosmopolitanism. For me, pro-human means that you can be rooted in a particular place. You can be rooted in particular heritage, set of traditions, ancestry, but you can be a citizen of the world also at the same time. And if you're talking about cosmos, you can have a cosmic consciousness. You can realize that you're part 
of a universe and the fortune, the fortune of being alive, of having human consciousness and the blessing of that to riff on my Christian heritage is so profound that we should wake up every day with an attitude of gratitude. We should wake up every day being grateful that we can breathe, that we have another day to strive and to work and to play, you know, like a, like a real attitude of appreciation for just living itself. It's what Murray called, you know, affirmation of life itself. And so to me, pro-human means that we're affirming life in our human existence as spiritual beings having a human experience. Wow, Greg. I think you you may have just bumped Nick Gillespie uh, because up until just now, I think he had my favorite response to that question. And you have taken the top spot, I think. That Thank you, sir. Perfect. Thank you thank so you. much, Greg. Thank you so much for Absolutely. joining us on Fair Perspective. Thank you so much, Angel. And thank you for the work you do and for the work FAIR does also. Awesome. Thank you for listening to FAIR Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly FAIR news and opinion pieces by members of the FAIR community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune in to FAIR News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.